Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Boy, out of nowhere, it's Friday again, uh, Friday, June 25th. We're staring July right in the face. It'll be upon us next week and, of course, 4th of July holiday when I, I hope a lot of you are going to get uh, to take some time off and enjoy the summer. Um, thanks for being with us for the show today. We have a lot to talk about, so let's get... Oh, before we get to the panel, I want to make one uh, correction. Yesterday on the show, uh, we talked about the fact that uh, HarperCollins has reached a deal with the King Estate to uh, republish some of Dr. King's works with a special focus on uh, getting it out to young people who just really may not be that familiar with a lot of what he wrote. It's a very exciting uh, uh, step in the right direction. And someone on the show yesterday mentioned that Dr. King was born in 1928. So I just want to correct it. I got a really lovely email uh, this morning from, I think you pronounce it Shirella Dawn Brave, who says, no, he was born in um, 1929, January 15th, 1929. And the reason I like the note so much is she says, the reason she is aware of that always is that her grandmother, Carrie Bell Brave, was born the same day in the year, January 15th, 1929. And she says she's always been proud she shared the same birthday as Dr. King. So I just wanted to give a shout out to her for sending us that correction. Okay, it's Friday, which means Patricia Murphy, AJC political reporter and the uh, uh, columnist who writes the Political Insider column that you read on Wednesdays and Sundays in the paper. She also oversees uh, the political uh, blog, uh, The Jolt, at AJC.com. How are you, Patricia? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I want to uh, mention very briefly, you've already uh, posted your Sunday column online, and I think it's really interesting, and maybe we'll find time to spend at least a couple minutes on it later in the show. You, you basically talk about the fact that uh, efforts to compromise, to try to make things happen through compromise, uh, just don't have any ability to get anywhere uh, in, in uh, Congress uh, these days. And I think it's a, a really interesting piece. So Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about it later, but it's up on the web right now. Yes, thank you so much. All of the, just about everything that's ever come out of Congress has been the result of compromise. We have lots of Georgia senators and members of Congress who uh, got almost everything important that they did through compromise. And um, the, the incentives in this political environment uh, really don't support that, but I'm hoping that, it, that they will. Okay. Um, we're also joined by Riley Bunch, who I am now proud to say we can introduce as a GPB reporter. She's been uh, working with us for a little while now. And uh, Riley, uh, you are in the GPB radio studio doing the show today. How wonderful. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, it's a little interesting and intimidating to stare down the mic this morning for the first time, but I'm excited <laughs> to be here. I think you'll do just fine. Uh, Marielle Romero is with us as well. She's the uh, Community Empowerment Director for Univision and the host of her own show on Univision. Mariella, how are you doing today? I'm Bill. Good morning. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, I'm going to be interested in hearing your thoughts on the Kamala Harris, her first visit as Vice, Vice President to the border, and we'll get to that in a little while. Also, Chuck Cook. Uh, one of the top immigration lawyers in the country uh, is with us today. He not only works as a consultant for businesses that are looking to figure out immigration laws that allow them to uh, bring people into the country, but also has been an advocate for, uh, for those who are stuck in the tangle of immigration uh, problems that prevent them from coming in. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to be here, Bill. Um, okay, we're going to get to immigration in a minute, but Patricia, I think we have to start really um, with uh, Rudy Giuliani, of all people, and there's really two interesting aspects to the Giuliani story uh, this morning. Number one, uh, yesterday, a New York State appellate court temporarily suspended 
uh, Giuliani's uh, license to practice law in the state of New York. Um, and uh, they were very harsh in the way they talked about his uh, efforts to try to uh, overturn the 2020 presidential election and all of the lies and misleading statements he made in various settings, including courts across the country. Um, and uh, here's one of the things that the appellate court ruling said, quote, the seriousness of respondents' uncontroverted misconduct cannot be overstated. This country is being torn apart by continued attacks on the legitimacy of the 2020 election and our current president, Joseph Biden. Uh, and uh, they went on to say that he very likely will face permanent sanctions after now a hearing. But here's what's interesting, Patricia. How many, they mentioned what Giuliani's uh, uh, conduct in coming into Georgia to testify in front of legislative committees. How many times was his, uh, was Georgia mentioned in the uh, appellate decision? Well, it's a 33-page document, and it uh, mentioned his conduct in Georgia 35 times to give you an idea of how offensive and uh, inappropriate and worthy of sanction that entire charade was when he came down to Georgia in December. He came down and spoke at, at a couple of different legislative committee hearings, right? He did. Um, so Republicans in the... Um, Georgia Senate especially um, were very close to Donald Trump. And it's a group, it's a small group of Georgia Republican senators, not all of them. Um, very close to Donald Trump, very tied in and really wedded to his false claims that the Georgia election was rigged against him and held these hearings as a sort of... Um, not a moot court, but held legitimate Senate hearings on the integrity of the Georgia election in 2020. Um, their star witness, without telling most of the senators in the room on the panel, was Rudy Giuliani. Many of the other senators had no idea he was coming until he walked through the door, um, escorted by uh, a couple of Georgia state senators who had arranged it all. Um, <laughs> Georgians may remember Rudy Giuliani was COVID positive at the time. We didn't know that. He was sweating. He was there for seven hours. And he really laid out just a, a nonstop series of totally unfactual, um, untruthful, ridiculous claims about the Georgia election that really took off because it was broadcast live on a number of very conservative uh, news outlets. Um, and the New, New York State Supreme Court said not only were they lies, he knew that they were lies. And uh, mm -hmm. you cannot do that as a lawyer. <clears throat> I'm sure Chuck can speak to this. Um, yeah. Lawyers lose their license if you go to court and say things that you know aren't true. That's the only way to keep the judicial process legitimate. And they really have ruled that really Giuliani has, uh, has been an, an offense to that. Lawyer Cook, weigh in. Well, you know, it's really interesting that uh, the timing of this. But, you know, here's the reality. He's never getting his law license back. That, that's just not going to happen. And perhaps the worst part of it is he didn't even get paid to do this uh, because Trump refused to pay him. So he lost his law license for literally nothing the same day that one of Trump's former lawyers lost his law, law license, Roy Cohn, back in 1974. What an odd coincidence uh, the fates have for people. Wow. That is really bizarre. Uh, by the way, he is still licensed uh, to practice law in uh, Washington, D.C., I believe. But when you say he'll never get a chance to practice again, you're talking specifically yeah. about New York State, given the ruling there. Riley, I think you were uh, reporting on the Giuliani uh, hearing and were in the room when he was there. Yeah, I don't think I was in the room, but I was definitely there. Oh, okay. and, um, they had limitations because of COVID at that time. And, you know, <laughs> funny enough, Giuliani had COVID. And I, I think this news about Rudy Giuliani is a really good um, reflector on how much Georgia played such a crucial role in the last 2020 elections. And, you know, as, as Patricia mentioned, uh, most of the senators in the room were not aware of his visit. Kemp was very, very mad about his visit. So it was Raffensperger. Apparently he was disrespectful to the Capitol Police. You know, this was not a fun affair, but it makes me wonder what 
the Republican senators and House members who, you know, supported him there, sat there and gave his ideas credence. I wonder what they're thinking about this news. Uh, Mary, I'll jump in. Yes, when, you know, I read articles about Rudy Giuliani and when I you know, see reports, journalists, we are trying to make an effort to remind people that Rudy Giuliani was an ex-federal prosecutor, a fellow federal prosecutor. He was a former mayor of New York City uh, during 9-11. Uh, the world thought the best of him, and now he is reduced to be in a caricature, uh, you know, when the court says that he gave demonstrably false and misleading statements. It's just so sad what is happening to him. And like Charles said, for nothing, he, did, he didn't even get paid for this. So um, it's a sad commentary on the state of affairs in our politics and how people can debase themselves. Uh, for political purposes. Well, thank you all for that, because, uh, Patricia, we have another element to add to the Giuliani story today. (laughs) You report in The Jolt this morning that just a day after getting his law license suspended, at least temporarily, Rudy Giuliani has uh, announced he'll be in Georgia next week uh, campaigning and raising money on behalf of Republican candidate for governor, Vernon Jones, another shot at Brian Kemp, the incumbent, for refusing to overturn the Georgia election as if he had the uh, authority to do that. Yes, Rudy is returning to the scene of the crime when he comes back to Atlanta next week. (laughs) Um, But we will be watching very, very carefully to see who goes to that fundraiser. It's next week. It's a $1,000 minimum. Will there be any elected Republicans in that room and supporting Vernon Jones? It's not just a chance to see Rudy again, um, but it would be a huge affront to the governor. Um, And it really is sort of a moment of choosing for, uh, especially for those Republican senators who brought uh, Giuliani to town the first time around. Will they be with him again in support of Vernon Jones? against the governor. That's the real question above and beyond uh, the, the ridiculousness of it all. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, uh, although uh, uh, Vernon Jones appeared at a number of Trump rallies and, the, and the, the, the base, the people who showed up for the rallies, voters, were very enthusiastic about him, there are an awful lot of people in the Republican Party in Georgia who are entirely suspicious of Vernon Jones for a number of reasons, Riley, uh, not only because he is, was a Democrat up until the 2020 election, uh, but also because of some personal baggage he carries with him that's going to make it hard for him uh, to get free of as he mounts his campaign in the coming year, Riley? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like a good majority of the Georgia GOP do not support Vernon Jones. You know, he is this theatrical candidate, right? And we we see that from who he's associating himself with. Um, He's bringing Rudy Giuliani, and we can see that he's kind of on that fringe of the GOP that people aren't supporting. And he does have a lot of baggage that comes with him. I know the AJC did a great investigative piece about, you know, his history of treatment of women. Um, I don't think, you know, Vernon Jones is having a good run right now. And it will be very telling to see who actually shows up to the um, fundraiser. So let me uh, expand on that. So Mariella and then Chuck on this, if, if I can, and you're all welcome to jump in. Um, one of the things that's really, though, even more interesting than the Vernon Jones event next week, Mariella, is Giuliani remains close to Donald Trump, obviously. In fact, Trump issued a statement in response to the appellate court's uh, decision saying, what are they doing? He's a great American hero. How could they do this to him? I'm paraphrasing uh, of what Trump actually said, but the point is they're still close. So this week, you have Corey Lewandowski... Uh, going on a right-wing radio show and and criticizing Brian Kemp, saying, who does Brian Kemp think he is, that he's entitled to be, you know, crowned uh, for a, a second term? We think there's another candidate who can come forward. And he, he sort of talked loosely about someone in, in vague terms. Um, and then you've got Rudy Giuliani yesterday doing this. So the point being, Mariella, the Trump people are not giving up their efforts 
to try to take down Brian Kemp. And just one last note, I talked to a Republican, a state Republican operative yesterday, who uh, told me they were horrified by the treatment Brian Kemp was getting from Republicans. This is a conservative Republican who said, it's terrible the way Kemp is being treated. This guy deserves a, another term. Uh, so anyhow, this campaign continues, Mariella. Yes, and, and it's, it's, it's something interesting. If we were not living in this world as human beings and we were aliens analyzing all of this, it would be a fascinating uh, sociological experiment. And, and, and I think it's, it's happening throughout the world, not just in, in this country, but what is happening to politics is that all the people who are being radicalized, who are being uh, to the extremes, are the ones who are leading the conversation. And, and there's no room, apparently, for the people in the middle, for the people with uh, ideas of compromising with, um, you know, things that really make, make us progress. Their voices are not being heard. So every time that I see uh, the tactics, tactics being utilized to rally the base, they go to the craziest ideas. And, uh, well, that, that's proof what's going on uh, on the preparation for the 2020 election. Well, you know, Bill, I do want to start by saying Donald Trump isn't close enough to Rudy Giuliani to pay his bills. So, I mean, he may be his friend still, <laughs> but he's never going to pay his bills. Second, uh, this, this candidate that uh, Corey Lewandowski is referring to appears to be a former mayor of a town in West Georgia um, who uh, apparently was down at Mar-a-Lago with Lewandowski and Trump not that long ago. But I think the, these folks underestimate the Republican Party in Georgia, who I don't think is, generally speaking, a wild uh, right-wing group of folks. Um, uh, obviously, Brian Kemp has uh, been on the outs with, uh, with Trump, but the reality is he has fulfilled basically all of his campaign promises. Uh, he has done exactly what he said he would do. He had a, you know, a strong Republican majority legislature to do so. Um, it would be the shocking of, uh, shockingest of upsets to not see Brian Kemp as the Republican candidate for governor in 2022. Um, Patricia, I want to, you certainly should weigh in on that, but I think we should add to this, and you should, I'd like your thoughts about this as well. The other thing you report in the Joel today is that um, there, there's a senior GOP operative, you've said, who has a survey sent over to you all uh, that could point to another potential candidate, right? So comment on all of this. Yeah, that's right. There is apparently a, a, a poll out in the field um, right now that says uh, among Republican voters, if you heard about a senior executive with a large tech company like Apple, Google or Facebook, how would you feel? You know, they're sort of testing the uh, testing the waters for anybody to get out there and challenge Brian Kemp. Um, you know, I agree that Brian Kemp has really other than his role upholding the results of the Georgia election, um, has done everything that he promised to do um, above and beyond and uh, and much to the frustration of a number of Democrats. He is conservative. He's never been not conservative. Nothing he's done has been unconservative. Um, so I think he, he really has that going for him among Republican voters. The problem that I hear um, people are concerned about among Republicans is even if he does win the primary, which he's going to beat Vernon Jones. Um, if, if somebody else comes out of the woodwork, we'll see. Even if he does win that Republican primary, there's a lot of anxiety about what happens in the 9th District and the 14th District. And among those Republicans who did not turn out for Trump, because Donald Trump was still going around like a maniac saying that the election was rigged against him, will those voters come out for Donald Trump? That I mean, excuse me, for Brian Kemp. That's how they lost in 2020. And even if he wins the primary, how do they prevent that from happening again? Yeah, uh, Riley, uh, uh, Patricia, of course, is talking to the, about the January uh, 6th, the 5th, the election in which oh, I'm sorry, yes. uh, uh, the Democrats, Raphael Warnock and uh, John Ossoff won and Republicans stayed home. Riley? 
Yeah, you know, when I read in the jolt this morning about that little secret survey sent out to the GOP, it's really just a testament to we don't know what the fields are going to look like yet for the 2022. We really just don't. The GOP is still back and forth of who they want as against Raphael Warnock. They, 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 even Kemp is going to have a number of more primary challengers, I'm sure, with redistricting coming up. That really affects all of the House races. And um, I think it's just a testament to, you know, we, we know the big names. But there could be some surprises. Okay, well, we're going to watch uh, to see what happens uh, next week when Rudy Giuliani comes down here for uh, Vernon Jones, and we'll certainly report on it here on Political Rewind. Um, let's move on. Let's talk about Vice President Harris's visit to the border today. She's going to be down there at El Paso. Um, she has not visited the border as Vice President yet, despite the fact that uh, President Biden. A couple months ago, uh, put her in the role, essentially, of leading the administration's effort to sort out problems that they're dealing with at the border. And she's been criticized by both Republicans and people in her own party for uh, not speaking out in the way that people think she needs to. Uh, to address the problems. Republicans, of course, have one idea about how she should uh, talk about the border. Democrats have an entirely different idea. Um, Chuck, let me start with you on this. Um, I know you think in some ways this is, talking about Harris at the border is misdirection because you think there are bigger problems in terms of how the Biden administration is dealing with the border. But first speak to this visit and what you see from uh, her in terms of what she's going to be able to say down there uh, to make the situation better. Well, let's be clear. She's not going to make the situation any different, whether it's better or worse. I mean, literally, she's just going to go to a border patrol station and then talk to some NGOs who deal with the women and children that come across the border and send a little press conference. So in many ways, it's, it's a show. Uh, hey, here I am at the border. I do not expect her unlike uh, Republicans, be standing in front of the border wall giving a press conference. In fact, I think she'll be far away from the border wall giving a press conference. But uh, some of the things that the Biden administration has done has been good uh, at the border and have actually helped ameliorate massive human suffering, including the ending of the migrant protection, the euphemistically named migrant protection protocols, which kept people waiting in Mexico to get kidnapped by the, by the, by the narcos. Uh, and uh, murdered and raped, uh, uh, that was a massive humanitarian crisis. But the bad stuff that they've done is they've almost doubled the number of people in immigration custody since the day he was inaugurated, including here in Georgia. And there are over 20,000 children still in the custody of the federal government. Um, Not that they've been separated from their parents, but they haven't been placed with people um, that can better care for them than the United States government. Yeah, I agree uh, when when Charles says that this is a show. It is a show in response to the criticism that uh, this administration has had, and specifically the vice president. And also, Donald Trump is, is taking credit for this visit because he's saying that, uh, you know, because he is going to visit in a couple of days, and that's why the vice president uh, is going to visit the area. Um, you know, I, I don't think that meaningful steps are going to be taken through this visit. This is uh, also applicating some of the uh, Democrats who have been uh, begging the administration for the uh, president to attend the area and meet with the people affected. But, uh, you know, the meaningful uh, solutions to what's happening is in Congress, and it is engaging in diplomatic efforts. So this is just to show the media, uh, you know, opportunity. So, Riley, um, uh, Vice President Harris did go to Guatemala recently, and during that visit, um, she basically, what, what was really notable about her comments there was she said to migrants in Guatemala, don't come to the United, don't try to cross the U.S. border. And uh, the reporting on her uh, visit there says, and this is from the New York Times, the administration's focus would be asserting control over its borders, even if that meant turning away for now those fleeing persecution and poverty who, uh, Vice President Harris said, in the long run, they're going to find some way to help. 
Uh, Riley? You know, I think Vice President Harris really needs to streamline her message around immigration and border control. And I think that's part of her efforts in her visit, you know, today. Um, but th- this, these comments that she made when she was on her trip were, were surprising to progressive Democrats. They were surprising to immigration advocates and it really frustrated people. So I think she's really in some, you know, choppy waters with how she goes forward. I know her message has been to push this, you know, start at the root source of these causes, why people are leaving their countries. But um, hopefully we hear something from her on our visit today, a little bit different. But it's been it's been a point of contention for the administration. Patricia, this is not a Republican problem during a Trump administration or a Democratic problem during uh, the Obama administration. I mean, this is a problem that Republicans and Democrats in power have faced. Inhumane treatment of people at the border has uh, uh, been uh, conducted by both Republicans and Democrats from Obama to Trump and and now to some extent uh, to Biden. And what it points out is what a thorny problem this is. Bill, I will date myself here. My first job in politics was working for Sam Nunn as his immigration caseworker, which is uh, when people who are Georgians can call their senator's office if they just can't get any further with their with what they're trying to do through the legal through the legal system. I was overwhelmed all day, every day. I had hundreds of cases. The the depth to which the system was broken in the mid '90s has only gotten worse. People at that that point had, if you were trying to do it legally, you're applying to get a green card. Your wait could be anywhere for six months for an interview to two years. Your wait on a list to legally immigrate was up to 10 years if you really wanted to follow the rules. Now it's much longer than that. It's only gotten worse. And that has been through the Clinton, Bush one, Bush two, Obama, Trump, and now Biden. This problem is so systemic. It is so deeply rooted and it is so politically toxic that I will never forget when Saxby Shambliss, and I believe it was Johnny Isaacson, proposed mm-hmm. at the GOP convention about let's do a reasonable, targeted immigration reform and almost got booed out of the place. So no Republican yeah. in Georgia has gone back to that issue since then. And it is so dicey. I don't know how you make progress, to be honest. And I'm not surprised the Biden administration is struggling, especially Kamala Harris, who is from California and as a California Democrat is oriented in a way that's very progressive. As the president of America, uh, it's a different situation. Chuck? You know, first of all, I want to now I say now I remember where I met Patricia Murphy. The lawyers sent me their cases uh, for free. Thank you for all your work. It is, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, the, the Immigration <laughs> Constituent Services Office is at, at any congressional office is the busiest office because it is the worst yes. run agency in the government. Uh, but, you know, when I want to go back to Vice President Harris, part of her problem is. She may be a progressive Democrat from the California, but she knows nothing about the immigration system. Uh, yeah. She is not well-informed. She doesn't know the real root causes. She doesn't understand how the system fails people. Uh, and it's really hard to come up with solutions when you don't really understand the problem in the first place. I think that's what led to that comment she made in Guatemala. But the other point to remember is this. Our federal laws explicitly say that you can walk up to a port of entry, whether in an airport or at the border and say, I want to apply for asylum. I'm afraid to go back home. And the law says, we let you in to pursue your claim. That is the law. And so when you, you refuse to let them in to do that, you are actually breaking the law, as both the, the Trump and the Biden administrations have done. Uh, so it, Mariella hit the point on the head. This is only ultimately fixable in Congress, and that policy changes aren't going to solve the problem. And Patricia makes it clear that the idea that there could be some way of working out a solution in Congress is uh, not going to happen anytime soon. Real quickly, we got to get to a break, but I want to um, make sure we clarify something, Chuck. Um, it, the, it, the Trump administration established the policy that people who were seeking asylum would have to wait in Mexico before their cases came up, which is part of the illegality you're talking about. 
But it's also true that recently, in this past week, right, the Biden administration reversed that policy and said, yes, if you seek asylum, you can enter the country and wait here. So they are now following the law, yes? Well, five months into the administration, yes, they are allowing people, one, who were denied entry under the MPP to now come in. So that's about anywhere from eleven to 14,000 people to pursue their claims from Mexico. And second, they're – but they – well – Supposedly, they're not sending anybody back to Mexico to wait, but that's also not quite correct either. All right. We've got to get to a break. Um, We'll talk more about immigration and other topics on the show uh, after these messages. Chuck Cook, GPB's uh, uh, Riley Bunch, uh, Patricia Murphy of the AJC, Mariello Romero of Univision, who, by the way, has more Emmy Awards than you can count on your fingers and toes. We should point out this is a very celebrated uh, journalist, Mariella. Mariella, let me start with you if I can. Let's talk just for a couple more minutes about immigration. And if we can, especially because we have you and Chuck here, let's add it. Let's make, make it more. Let's talk about people. I imagine that in the Hispanic community in Georgia, the stories you all must hear about, you know, the sad stories about people whose families are trapped on the wrong side of the border, whose children are in detention, you must hear stories on a virtually daily basis that are troubling. And I'm sure Chuck can weigh in on that, too. Yes. And thank you for for that opportunity, because uh, they're not covered. Uh, on the mainstream media as much as they should. And I am very fortunate that I always count on Charles Cook to come on my program and talk about it, about the the solutions, the the things that are going on on immigration, the real uh, possibilities for people to to get their uh, immigration status corrected or approved, et cetera, because uh, of the stories that we hear, and they are heartbreaking. Um, you know, many, many families separated, people suffering abuse, people who have been sent back and then they fell, uh, they fall prey to the cartels, the criminal activity in Mexico. Uh, people, These people, the majority of them are are leaving countries because of the violence in their countries, and then they are uh, thrown to another situation where they are going to be victimized again and with no protection from uh, those countries. So it is a topic that we discuss, we present every single day to our audience, uh, and people do not see the human faces that are being affected. They talk about immigration with those labels, illegal, uh, they're breaking the law, but they're not seeing the humanitarian crisis. So thank you for this opportunity. You know, Bill, one of the very interesting things that we've seen, uh, some of us on this panel are old enough to remember the movie named Sophie's Choice, you know, the impossible choice of which Mm -hmm. child uh, to keep alive. Uh, That has been happening on the border for the last five months where uh, the Biden administration early on said, we're no longer going to uh, uh, put kids in cages. We're not going to separate families. But if you came in as a family, they would deport the entire family. But if you sent your children alone across the border, the children would get in and get placed with an HHS custody or family member. So actually the, the literal Sophie's choice was happening in 2021 on the border. Uh, so the stories that we hear every day from clients are heartbreaking. But I also want to point out, we also hear extraordinary stories of success, of, of families thriving, of, of individuals who entered the country undocumented a long time ago, who have done extraordinary things in the United States, but who cannot move forward because the laws haven't changed since 1990. And because we're living under laws from the 20th century, in a very different time, we end up with problems of people that are nearing retirement, who have lived in the United States more than half their time, um, half their life, whose children are U.S. citizens, mixed-status families. Um, and until we can move forward as a society um, and really force our Congress, rep- congressional representatives, 
to pass what a lot of people believe is important to make immigration regular again, uh, we are unfortunately going to continue to see the, strateg- the, the tragedies along with hearing about some of the successes. So, Patricia, it seems to me that this speaks almost directly to what I mentioned at the top of the show, your column in what's coming up in the Sunday AJC and is already posted online. In fact, uh, Amelia, maybe we could post a link on our social media to Patricia's column, and that is you can't get anything done in Congress because compromise is uh, now considered a dirty word, yes? And you peg it to the to the voting rights uh, uh, bill that failed uh, this week because of a Republican filibuster. Yeah, there are so many issues in this country. Um, immigration is a perfect example. The reason we have so many people uh, entering illegal illegally through the country is, is because the legal system is so deeply broken and Congress refuses to act to do anything about it. So it just leaves people to work outside the system when they would rather work inside the system. I'm 100% sure. Um, issues that we all know about, police reform, um, voting rights, uh, the infrastructure bill, all of these things coming up um, are going to require some real compromise within the parties and then also between the parties. Um, but the system right now with a 20, just a 12-month nonstop campaign with operatives who can just blast out tweets and emails directly to people's inboxes, who lie about what members of Congress are doing in order to fundraise off of it. And even some members of Congress are lying about what their colleagues are doing to fundraise off of that for themselves. And it's so hard for voters to wade through this. It took me a long time to get to the bottom of what was being circulated about Raphael Warnock just this week about voting rights. And so all of the incentives are outside of compromise. And it's going to really require leadership and some sacrifice from the people we've elected to go in and and do a compromise and to hear from voters, we want you to do this. I hear from so many readers like, oh, why can't they just do something? Why can't they just get something done? The reasons are very clear. They don't hear from people who want them to compromise and they don't get public congratulations when they do. And so that's what my column is about this Sunday. Okay, um, I'm glad you brought that up. And that I, I actually, I want to devote a longer uh, part of a show in the weeks ahead uh, to this very subject because it's really important. There are ways in which our democracy right now, if, if only temporarily, let's hope, seems to be coming unraveled because some of the problems that you are talking about. So we, we're going to do more with this. And I, I think we should do it on a day when you're uh, with us, Patricia. Um, Riley, can I change the subject? Because there's, there's another story in the news that is one that you followed very closely during your tenure at CNHI News when, much, when a lot of your beat at the State House included covering rural parts of Georgia. And that's this, um, this federal court order, which has now, at least temporarily, while a lawsuit proceeds, frozen something like $4 billion that the Biden relief package was earmarking for African-American farmers because it's an attempt to redress so many systematic issues that black farmers had with getting loans uh, to uh, 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 you know, farm their land and, and other issues that they faced. And now a uh, group of conservatives have filed a lawsuit calling it discriminatory. And it's, it's really been a difficult problem. Black farmers in Georgia are really struggling now and how to, you know, the fact that their rescue package is out the window for the time being. Yes, this was extremely disheartening news um, to the farmers of color in their community. You know, the problem with the USDA and how they treat farmers of color is that they have been promised and promised and promised time again. You know, we're going to open these extra programs to help with um, systemic discrimination in the agency. You know, now we have this $4 billion that was supposed to be earmarked to help them out. And again, it is put on hold. And again, it breaks down that trust between the community and between and the USDA. And, and, 
and, and overall, you know, the federal government as well. And talk about a hard week for Senator Warnock in terms of exactly what Patricia was talking about, compromise. You know, there was a uh, the voting rights bill blocked. And now this federal uh, preliminary injunction of this big relief program that he was touting and felt so much responsibility to get to these farmers. And it just really is another example of time and time again, um, retribution for these farmers who have had the hardest time, you know, they, there's we've lost thousands of farmers over the last decades, black farmers, because of the discriminatory, discriminatory practices of the USDA. Again, they feel failed. Uh, we do need to point out, and you really pointed us in the right direction, uh, Riley, that um, we have three members of the Georgia congressional delegation, all African-American, who play prominent roles on the Ag committees, uh, Raphael Warnock on the Senate Ag Committee, David Scott, who's the chair of the House Ag Committee, and Sanford Bishop, who chairs the uh, Ag Appropriations Committee. So, uh, Mariella, this is a big issue for uh, uh, some significant members of our congressional delegation. Correct. And, and you know, it, it is disheartening to see that. Uh, some conservative groups, they put their efforts into uh, tear down through the, the court system anything that is uh, has some beneficial to communities of color that have been disenfranchised. Uh, under, and, and, and I think Charles Cook is the one who, with, the, with a low degree, and, and can come in in a more um, articulate way, what I'm trying to say, but you seeing that it is unconstitutional because uh, race is one of the factors how to select the people who are going to be receiving uh, those aids. Uh, under that, uh, utilizing that, they are harming people uh, that have been uh, without access for generations. And I think that is also another conversation that we have to have. How can we create uh, bills that later cannot be uh, taken down or stopped in a judicial um, decision because the basis, the, the way the, the law, the provision of the law is written is based on race because that's the easiest way that they can block it. So it, it is, uh, terrible for black farmers, and I think there are amicus briefs that where a coalition of organizations representing Latinos and, and Native Americans are going to be uh, rebuking this uh, uh, this injunction. Uh, uh, Chuck, we should point out that this lawsuit uh, was brought by twelve white farmers. And uh, they're being represented by a conservative law firm, I think, in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. a firm that specializes in fighting anti-racism programs. And, and Chuck, let's just say this. Um, we, we struggle in many areas of life with dealing on, uh, with the question of how do we redress past grievances of African-Americans, for instance, in admissions to universities, uh, as just another example of this, without harming the rights of other groups as well. It isn't as if this is an issue that's very specifically and narrowly focused on this, uh, this relief money for black farmers. You know, part of the problem is when they write laws, they don't always take into account what judges have said about what could happen to those laws if they're not written properly. And that's part of the problem here. While I believe it is perfectly acceptable for Congress to write laws that will, agree, will, will, will uh, alleviate past harms, especially to black farmers, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it. And they just exemplified the way not to do it. Part of it is that they passed the bill so quickly that the legislative language simply didn't get the review it needed to get to be able to pass muster in the federal courts doesn't mean they can't go back and do it. But the problem now is, when are they going to go back and rewrite this law to get in some bill uh, that's not going to have to be, they're not going to be filibustered by, by the GOP? Part of the other problem on this is, yes, there's been a lot of great bills passed by compromise, but there's also been a lot of bills passed on party line votes. 
and uh, what the Democratic Party has demonstrated recently is they're simply not prepared to do that. Um, if Republicans were in this exact situation, and they have been, they would just figure out a way to ram bills through. And they have actually done that very successfully in the past. Uh, Democrats seem to be afraid of using the power they have uh, to, to create laws. I mean, a great example right now in immigration is that the reconciliation bill, they're talking about attaching to the immigration provisions, which are economic, but they're probably not going to do it. Patricia, let me give you a chance to get a last word in before I've got to get to our final break. Uh, just a quick note about um, about a very telling hearing about the legislation that was meant to help black farmers. Congressman Austin Scott, who was white, raised the objection to say, but there's no proof required that just because you're black and you're a farmer, you are discriminated against. And Congressman David Scott, cheering the hearing, who's very good friends with Austin Scott, said, that's how discrimination works. He said, but you would get discriminated against just because of the color of your skin? Where's the proof? And David Scott is like, America is the proof. This, requi this legislation requires that you believe in racism and that you believe it's pervasive and universal. And uh, that, I think, will be the, the thrust of, of this conversation, really, that we're having in America, to be honest. Exactly, because Republicans are saying, well, we don't believe systemic racism exists, period. All right, we got to get our final break of the show out of the way. We'll be right back. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. We're really down to the last few minutes of the show. Uh, Patricia, very quickly, uh, we cannot, uh, if immigration is an issue that won't go away, neither will the issue in Georgia and other southern states of what the heck to do with Confederate memorials. We now have lawsuits in two Georgia cities uh, brought by the Sons of the Confederate uh, veterans. The one indicator which demands the return of a memorial to the lost cause that used to sit in the Decatur Square that was removed last year uh, under an order by uh, Judge Clarence Seeliger, a DeKalb County judge. They want it back. In, in uh, Waycross, the Sons want the, uh, to stop the city from removing a, 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 a memorial to fallen Confederate soldiers. Um, this issue just isn't going away, but it raises an important question, and that is there's a state law which requires that the legislature be the body that decides whether these things, whether any memorials like this can be removed or not, and Seeliger really found a way around that, and the question is whether or not you can, you can uh, circumvent the law. Yeah, and this is most certainly going to be um, the subject of litigation in towns really all across Georgia. Um, it's a great opportunity to point out the work that the Georgia Historical Society is doing. Mm. They are going around the country, excuse me, the, the state, and adding historical markers about events particularly tied to the civil rights movement that Georgians have no idea about or about the Underground Railroad instances of people pushing for social justice and civil rights. Um, and they were in many times successful, sometimes unsuccessful, but it adds to the history that we don't know while we continue to have fights about the history that we do know. Um, Riley, the, the legislature put this law into effect a couple of years back, I think three sessions ago, maybe. And um, although it speaks to any kind of memorial in a, in a, in a, in a city, a municipality, it was obviously put in place to you know, protect Confederate memorials. And I think it's, you know, so timely that these things are happening when we're ha seeing this conversation around critical race theory, right, in, in playing out in classrooms. And we have the contention at Stone Mountain. And I think, you know, the legislature, too, has seen efforts to try to remove statues on the Capitol grounds. And, and it hasn't been successful. And on the flip side, there has been efforts to put up statues of, of John Lewis that haven't been successful, right? And so I think um, Patricia points out that this will be a Subject of litigation, and it's going to be very interesting to see how these lawsuits play out because I think that will impact future legislation that we're going to see. Uh, we return again to you, Lawyer Cook. Apparently, this uh, lawsuit in uh, Decatur probably has very little chance because the suit comes so much after the uh, memorial was removed and the decision was last year, for goodness sake. They had months to file, and we're only doing it now. 
Yeah, there, there's zero chance that Decatur, uh, the DeKalb County lawsuit is going to succeed. Maybe the county will just give them the statute and say, here you go, you know, do with it what you want. Uh, I don't think they've melted it down, although maybe they have. Um, but the reality is this is this is just indic- indicative of the type of politics and political environment we live in. It will be a, it will be a campaign issue in 2022 uh, um, beyond just the political talk shows. Uh, people are going to try to use this uh, in ways that will try to separate and divide society to create more voters for their their candidate. It's frankly, it's just truly sad at this point. And not only is it going to be utilized as a in the campaign, but this topic will also raise a lot of funds. There are a lot of people willing to give money uh, on this issue to protect those monuments. So it will be very interesting to watch. All right. We are coming down to uh, just about the end of Political Rewind for uh, today. It was a really, really fascinating conversation. I say this every now and then. I, when I get a chance to learn from the panel like I did today from all of you, I'm really grateful uh, to you. And I know our listeners out there are, too. So Mariella Romero, Chuck Cook, uh, Patricia Murphy, and GPB's Riley Bunch. We're, I'm so glad you could join us for the show today. Uh, by the way, uh, given this last subject that we talked about, I want to let you know about a show that Amelia Brock and I are working on for next week. Um, in fact, it will be on next Wednesday. Um, I got an email some time ago, the first time we discussed critical race theory on this show. A listener wrote me and said, could you explain to me how does Germany deal with the dark past of the Holocaust and Nazi Germany? How do they confront or not confront their history as a a way of wondering about what we're doing here? Um, And that raises questions about South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission and the way in which other countries have, in fact, looked or not looked at uh, the past. And so next Wednesday, we're going to talk about that very issue. What lessons can we learn here from how some other countries have dealt with things in the past that are horrific uh, and that they would love to sweep under the rug, but simply can't. That's going to be next Wednesday. Of course, we'll be on the air Monday and Tuesday before then, and I hope you'll join us for all of those shows. In the meantime, my thanks this week to Jesse Neiswanger, Amelia Brock, and Sam Burmistaz for their work on the show. I hope you all have a terrific weekend. Until Monday, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Uh, you'll probably want to wear a mask under some circumstances and not in others. And if you get vaccinated, if you haven't been, you have a lot more freedom to get out there and mix in the world without worrying about that mask all the time. Uh, So see you all on Monday again. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye, everybody.